So we want to welcome you to uh, Plum Creek Chapel uh, this evening, and uh, thank you for coming out. Beautiful day today, wasn't it? Uh, enjoy it, because it's going to not be that way tomorrow, from what I hear. Uh, so that's right. It's nice of the... Uh, the government to plan the snow on Thursday this week, not Wednesday, so we didn't have to, you know, cancel the in-person uh, Bible study. But uh, we are now in part 11 of how to read and understand uh, the Bible, and uh, this is basically a Bible study methods uh, course, and uh, we've, we're really looking forward to what we're going to talk about tonight as we continue to just go through some basic principles of uh you know, uh, how to study the Bible. Um, and uh, the live stream, I think, is working well because I just got four thumbs up from one of our folks that's trying to live stream out. So that's better than three four thumbs up. It's not quite as good as five or six thumbs up, but I'll take it. So uh, anyway, um, so uh, let me just mention a couple of quick announcements. Uh, our Tuesday podcast yesterday, the topic was seven divine calls for the believer. Interesting uh Interesting study if you do a word study on call and see the number of times that we talk about uh, a calling. So that's already posted at the Not By Works podcast channel, wherever podcasts are found. Just search for Not By Works Ministries. It's also available on the sermon page of Plum Creek Chapel in audio-only format. Uh, or you can always just go to notbyworks.org and click on the podcast page and the last 10 audio podcasts are there. So anyway, encourage you to watch that. I actually shared... A little bit more about my testimony of what I felt was my call into ministry at age 15. And it's a long time since I've really talked about that or in any kind of a recorded uh, message, but I use that as kind of a springboard to talk about what the Bible has to say about divine calls uh, for uh, the believer. Uh, we've got a great response so far to our study this past Sunday on the second coming and um, the kingdom, and we're in the midst of... Uh, uh, an ongoing series about the end times, but we got into the second coming last week on Sunday, and that video is available. Um, we're, we're talking about seven reasons for the second coming, and we got through the first three, and we'll pick that up again uh, this Sunday. So, But uh, for tonight, instead of a case study like I've been uh, doing uh, for the last several weeks here um, you know, at, uh, at, at this midweek Bible study, I thought uh, I want to really devote as much time as I can to the figures of speech, which we're going to talk about tonight. Uh, so I'm going to skip the case study, but I thought I'd instead start with some uh, humor. And so someone sent me a few of these uh, this week. I thought you'd appreciate them. First off, some words of wisdom from that uh, great theologian, Buzz Lightyear, uh, who said, you see, people don't want to hear your opinion. They want to hear their opinion coming out of your mouth, which is basically what Gary was saying. People are just telling me uh, what I want to hear. Uh, I thought this one was very appropriate and very uh, true uh, in terms of a changing world in which we live. But it says, we think we're so much smarter these days, but 50 years ago, the owner's manual told you how to adjust the valves. Today, it tells you not to drink the contents of the battery. <laughs> Isn't that true? I mean, you know, it's like, I don't know if they just think we're stupid, if people really are so stupid that they have to change uh, the directions. Um, I think I've used this one before during the uh, Spirit of the Antichrist series, but it circled back around to me, and I thought I got a chuckle out of it, so I thought I'd pass it along. My wife asked me why I spoke so softly in the house, and I said I was afraid Mark Zuckerberg was listening. She laughed. I laughed. Alexa laughed. Siri laughed. <laughs> And then last but not least, uh, uh, back when I was growing up, this was GoFundMe. Yeah. Amen? Yep. Go. Boys, get out there and shovel the walk. That, that's the, that was my uh, solution to, to GoFundMe. So. All right, well, of course, we're talking about how to correctly handle the Word of God, how to cut straight. The Bible is God's Word, uh, uh, God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. And that being the case, it ought to, we ought to take it seriously. It's not something we should just flippantly or haphazardly read through and hastily come to some conclusion as if we think it's a, a Dr. Seuss book or something. It is uh, a very uh, serious uh, work. It is God's divinely inspired message to mankind, everything he wanted us to know, everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, it's not... Uh, complex or confusing. It uses language, and as we're talking about in this series, 
Uh, if you can understand language, you can understand the Bible. And yet, because uh, Satan has uh, kind of had his crosshairs set right on the Word of God, both the living written Word of God and the living incarnate Word of God, uh, since he got kicked out of heaven, uh, it has really become difficult, uh, unnecessarily, but difficult for people to read the Bible in its plain normal sense. So uh, remember, the big picture approach is to observe what the Bible says, interpret it correctly using its literal grammatical historical setting, and then apply it to your life. Um, so uh, we've been talking about 24 rules of interpretation, and uh, we left off last uh, week during the live stream. Of course, we weren't able to meet uh, in person, uh, but we left off, I think, with number 13. Uh, so, uh, so let me just review very quickly. We said, number one, work from the fact that the Bible is authoritative. Number two, the Bible best interprets itself, so Scripture uh, must correspond to other Scripture. You can't have the Bible contradicting itself. Uh, we call that the analogy of faith. Uh, scripture has to be analogous with other Scripture. Uh, saving faith and the Holy Spirit are necessary to fully embrace and properly apply the Scriptures. We've talked a lot about that. I won't rehash these because we've talked about them. Uh, we, we said interpret personal experience in light of Scripture, not the other way around. And then we said biblical examples are authoritative only when supported by a command. We're going to come back to that later and get go into more detail about how to interpret narrative literature. So I'm going to, after we go through all this general stuff, I'm going to zero in uh, on things like narrative literature, prophecy. How do you handle biblical prophecy? Obviously, that's very important to us because we believe in the literal future uh, of unfulfilled prophecy. Uh, how do you interpret parables? Uh, things like that. Um, the primary purpose of the Bible is to change our lives. We've talked about that. Each person has the right and responsibility uh, to investigate and interpret the Word of God for himself. We don't have to go through some kind of human mediator. Uh, we talked about church history is important but not decisive. Uh, and we talked about how the promises of God throughout the Bible are available to believers of every generation through the Holy Spirit. So these are the ones I vaguely remember uh, going through last week. By the way, it was a little difficult to just sit and talk to a screen when I'm so used to interacting uh, with you all. So uh, if I've seemed a little off, it was just it was hard for me to kind of get into uh, get into the groove. So, um, uh, but the one that I did talk about last week that I said we might come back to this week, and we're we're going to pause here for a moment and talk about it, is the concept of singularity of meaning. That uh, Scripture has only one meaning, and that it should be taken uh, literally. So. If you remember, way back towards the beginning of this series, we talked about this in generalities. Uh, we didn't mark it as a hard, fast principle of how to study the Bible. Uh, but we talked about it at the principle level, and we said, where does meaning reside? Does it reside with the reader? Uh, does it abide somewhere in between? You know, a lot of modern liberal scholars today are talking about the interpretive dance, that interpretation is really this dance between you as the reader or listener and the text, the, the written word or the person who's speaking, and that you really there's this dynamic there. Or does meaning reside uh, with the text? Well, we believe that based on fundamental rules of communication, meaning always have to, has to reside with the author, with the originator of what's said. So I determine what I mean, not you. If you determine what I mean, Communication is impossible. Yeah, Gary. You talked about there's only one true meaning, mm -hmm. but five people can read the same passage, and you have three different meanings coming out of that passage. So the comment is five people can read the same passage, and 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 that five people come away with five different meanings. And as we talked about, and we had a really good discussion several sessions ago, and I'm pointing at. Um, can because I think you kind of sparked the discussion, but there's a difference between meaning and significance. There's one meaning. When the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God, the creator of the universe, intended to communicate one thing. Just like right now as I'm speaking, I'm communicating something to you. You're not sitting there thinking, okay, what are the six or seven things he's saying with that last sentence? You're thinking, I heard the sentence, I understood what he meant, and now he's going to say another sentence, right? Singularity of meaning. So what you're describing is how the Holy Spirit can take a passage with one meaning 
and you then apply it to your life in, in various ways, but that doesn't change the meaning. Does that make sense? No. Okay. I understand the difference between meaning and okay. interpretation, but who says this is the meaning? And I know you, how you come up with that meaning, but someone else, the same qualities, not qualities, or qualifications, could come up with just another nuance. Yeah, so someone else, he says, with, uh, who's a Bible scholar or Bible teacher uh, could come up with a different meaning. How do you know who's right? Is that what you're saying? Well, when two people, it doesn't have to even be scholars, because remember, the Bible understood in its plain literal sense is available to everybody, right? So, first of all, don't, don't think of it in terms of, do I, do I respect and trust this scholar more than this one? No, forget that. Go to the Bible and see what it says. But when two people come to the same verse and come away with two different meanings, either they're both wrong, or one's right and one's wrong, but they cannot both be right. It's impossible. Because if they could both be right, then all of a sudden a third scholar comes along. Now you've got three meanings and four meanings and five meanings, and God's up there going, wow, I didn't know I was that mystical that I could say one sentence and people come up with a hundred meanings from it. So language, singularity of meaning is fundamental to the communication process. Uh, if, if the listener or reader gets to determine the meaning, then when you think about it, communication is impossible, right? Because you can take whatever I say and completely make it mean something that was furthest from my mind. Yeah? Would there be less of a chance of multiple meanings if you were studying the original language? Are there less of a chance of, uh, let's just say, of getting the wrong meaning uh, or an incorrect interpretation if you're studying the original language? Uh, I think that arriving at meaning is a, at the correct meaning, is a process that involves a variety of things. It involves uh, observation. Maybe you missed something. Maybe you thought something was a command when it really wasn't. Uh, it involves being able to just have good grammar skills, <laughs> even if you never studied the original language. And yes, sometimes there are passages where doing a, digging a little deeper to the original language can solve interpretive difficulties. But I always hesitate to lead with that because I don't ever want to make it sound like unless you're a Hebrew or Greek scholar, you can't understand the Word of God. There's a fundamental doctrine that goes back centuries that we espouse as conservative evangelical Bible teachers called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture, which I've always thought is a very ironic name because what it means is the understandability of Scripture. And it's kind of hard to know what it means if you can't even understand what it's called. But uh, perspicuity, which means that anyone can understand the Scripture. So, yes, uh, we do need to understand and be at least aware that the Bible was not written originally in English. Okay, um, But that doesn't mean that a good interpretation in English or any other language can't be derived from the original languages. So... We can trust the Bible we hold in our hands because great scholars that are a lot smarter than you and I have, and have, have translated it and, and done the best they can to put it in words that we can understand. But that said, yeah, there are places in the Bible where uh, knowing that you know, what the original Greek or Hebrew word was can help resolve uh, a mystery um, or a difficulty. So I think it's... Uh, it's, it's uh, not as common as you might think, but it is important. And that's, that's, by the way, this is all part of God's divine design with the local church. That's why God, 2,000 years ago, set apart the office of elder and pastor and teacher and gave qualifications that they need to be able to handle the Word of God correctly. Remember, that passage is in the pastoral epistle. Because um, while any believer can study the Word of God for him or herself, there are those whom God has called who have studied it more intensely and do have knowledge of the languages and can help in those places where you need to dig a little bit deeper. So, uh, you know, the fact is, yes, there are a wide variety of interpretations and theological systems. You've got Calvinism, Arminianism, Charismatic, Wesleyan, Dispensational, you name it. Um, but the fact that there are 
a diverse number of interpretations of certain passages does not change the fundamental principle that there is only one correct interpretation. Right? It's kind of like the analogy, hold that thought for one second. The analogy that I like to use is in the, in the <coughs> sanctification process, right? Um, how, how many of you here believe that we ought, as believers, to be growing in Christ-likeness, becoming more mature, and getting sin under more control the longer we are a believer? Right? Okay. Now, how many of you are perfect? Nobody. So, by, so, so should I then say, well, if nobody's perfect and we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven, then why even bother? No, of course not. We still strive for Christ-likeness in spite of the fact that we know as long as we're in this flesh sold under sin, we're going to struggle. Similarly, even though nobody will get every single interpretation correct this side of glory, doesn't mean we ought to not try because there is one and only one meaning. The minute you um, crack the door on a multiplicity of meanings, you've lost the game because now you have no standard on which to say you're wrong. Anybody can be right at that point. And then the Bible is just this uh, very uh, morphable or whatever the word is uh, document. And so the same battle, by the way, is being raged uh, uh, in a secular sense with the Constitution of the United States and has been for 100 years now, where liberals say the Constitution is a living, breathing text that changes over time and gets to mean whatever we want it to mean. Conservatives true conservatives, believe that the Constitution has only one meaning, and it's based upon what the framers meant when the pen hit the paper. And so, for example, uh, when you look at the, the debate over the Second Amendment, well, you know, some people say, well, that was then, this is now, we, it really means something different today. No, we can go back and read the, you know, uh, uh, other writings of the founders of the Constitution, of the drafters of the Constitution, to know what was in their mind and what they meant when they said what they said. We don't have to wonder. We don't get to, you know, uh, 200 and whatever it is, 50 years later, we don't get to go back and put words in their mouth. What they meant was what they said. And the same thing is true with God's Word. So um, it's really important that we understand this concept of the singularity of meaning. I know that it really runs contrary to everything that we've been taught in the last 50 years in particular, really the last, since the rise of higher criticism, but especially in this postmodern age, uh, where you know everyone says, well, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to you, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what does it mean? And, uh, and we, we can, using proper uh, s uh, skills, uh, arrive at that. Now, we, we always, especially when we come to more difficult passages, need to hold our interpretations with a, a degree of uh, humility and recognize that, you know, a case can be made. Like you'll hear me say sometimes, here's, here's how I understand this. I, here's why I believe it says this. Here's the context. Here's how I connect the dots. But, you know, other scholars can take, a, take it another way, and there's a case to be made for that. I think, all things considered, my view is the right view. I mean, obviously, I wouldn't teach a view that I thought was wrong, right? I mean, I teach what I teach because I think I'm right. If I thought I was wrong, why would I teach it, right? So there's nothing wrong with saying, I'm right. But you need to understand that you might not be, and that as you study the Bible, it's a lifelong process, and as you connect the dots, you may come to a place where you say, oh, you know what, I never considered that verb or that connection to that pronoun back up here. I never made that cross-reference. And now I kind of see it in a different light. And now maybe, okay, you know, I get it. So humility is the key. Someone had a hand over here. You made okay. reference um, many weeks back that you had changed your mind about something the more you studied it. Yeah, well, we prefer to think of it as refinement. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I mean, that's true. I, You know, it's... Uh, the tendency that the, the younger we are in the faith and the less we study the word is to jump to quick conclusions. See, we are, we are conditioned for quick fixes, right? Um, you know, we, we, we don't like to really take the time. So that's why we're so prone to pull for that commentary. You know, I can't tell you how many emails I get routinely. Can you recommend a good commentary? And what do I always say? The first thing, you've heard me say it a hundred times, quoting, I think it was Spurgeon. 
Well, never forget, the Bible will shed a lot of light on commentaries. <laughs> Start with the Bible. And uh, I, I understand the value of commentaries. I look at them. I have dependable scholars that I look at when I've arrived at a meeting and I want to say, oh, let me see if anybody else agrees with me, right? Uh, so that's nothing wrong with commentaries, but we like to short, we tend to short circuit the process by saying, let me see what this means. Well, when you do that, all you're getting is what this person arrived at as the interpretation. And as Gary said, if you get six or eight different commentaries, you're going to probably get six or eight different views, especially if they're from different theological frameworks. So uh, just kind of keep that in mind. But yeah. So let me repeat that because this is a really great comment. And um, so she said, I feel like the wind has been taken out of my sails because whenever someone sends me a verse, you know, I tend to think, what does this really mean? And I go to the scripture and look it up and I'm not sure whether the person who sent it, what they really intended by it or whatever. So what you describe as the wind taking, being taken out of your sails, what I heard is when someone sends you a scripture verse, it drives you to the word of God. Amen. Right? Isn't that the goal? <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 doing what it should be. But the other point, comment I wanted to make is that do we do that with any other language? Do we you know do we get a just a, a comment from someone? You know, Gary sends me an email. Do I sit there and say, oh well, I wonder what he really meant? Let me decode. It. Let me decipher this. No. It's at plain face value sense, we know what it means. Remember all those uh, synonyms that we use? I guess I took them out of this presentation. Oh, yeah, here it is. Uh, this is what we're striving for. This is true of all language. What's the plain, natural, normal, historical, customary, grammatical, straightforward, face value meaning of these words? So I would argue that most of the time when someone sends you or someone sends me a verse, it's pretty self-evident even without going and looking at the context, what the plain face value meaning is. And so, but if it's not, then rather than let the person who sent it define, well, this is what it means to me, we should go to the Word of God and, and, and pick it apart. So the other thing to remember is when people are following the unction of the Holy Spirit to send someone a verse, that's at the applicational level. So it almost doesn't really matter what the original meaning is in its broadened context of, you know, Israel was doing this and God was saying this and the kings of Edom were doing, you know. It's just, you can tell what, how the Spirit of God used that in their mind to help you and encourage yes. you. So keep it at the application level. And remember, the Word of God is, uh, is quick and powerful. I always remember reading the story of uh, Eugenia Price. Anybody remember that old name? She's an old fundamentalist uh, Christian lady that wrote some books. But she tells the story. I think I've got her name right. I may be conflating her with someone else, but I'm pretty sure it's her. But she tells the story of how she came to faith. And she was into um, like, uh, like architecture or design or something. That was where her, what her field was. And someone sent her a Bible verse about the dimensions of the ark in that section where it's talking about how to build it. And the Spirit of God used that to convict her that the Bible is true and that, you know, so you know, is that what that meant? Did God reveal those words to Moses in Genesis intending, you know, at the time that he did it to, to see that this lady got saved? No, it, that's application. So, so the Spirit of God, the Word of God is quick and powerful and it's so, you know, amazing. And, and so, but, but it's good, but back to the beginning of what I said, it's great that when someone sends us a verse now, our first thought is, wow, I wonder what that means. Or especially sometimes when it's way off base, like, for example, hopefully by now in our group, you know, if you're, 
maybe you're struggling with a decision, maybe a life a career choice or something, and so someone sends you a verse, hey, praying for you. Don't forget, God knows the plans He has for you and plans to prosper you. And not well, at least you'll immediately think, you know what? In that context, He was talking to Israel, but it's a great reminder that if God has plans for a nation, He has plans for me too, and so I can apply that to me. But that's not what it meant in that uh, in that context. So yeah, Kim. So I was going to frame this question one way, but listening to a couple more conversations here, what role does the Holy Spirit have when the moment an individual studies the Word of God or opens the Word of God up to some place they've been going through or something like that, and and and, and you seek the meaning. So what, what role does the Holy Spirit have in that? So what role does the Holy Spirit play in the interpretive process? So what you're referring to is called the doctrine of illumination, the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. And we're actually going to talk about that, and I've uh, written about it. Um, I think I made reference, I can't remember, but I have a detailed paper that was published in a journal all about the Holy Spirit's ministry of illumination. But the short answer is, the Holy Spirit does not reveal supernaturally the meaning of the text to us. Because if he did, then we'd all have it perfect, and there wouldn't be six or eight different interpretations, because there's only one Holy Spirit. He's not going to tell one person one thing and one person another, right? The Holy Spirit uh, helps us welcome and embrace the Scriptures. He brings to our remembrance certain other passages when we're reading that can help us arrive at the meaning. But as we've said... Even an unbeliever can understand the words on the page, what, what they mean, because it's basic communication skills. So we've got to break free from this mistaken notion that we've, we've been taught for years and years now that interpreting the Bible is a mystical, supernatural thing that only the really spiritual ones can divine the meaning because the Holy Spirit has a secret way into them and he really revealed it to him in a dream or something no no meaning is pretty straightforward simple based on the words on the page where the holy spirit comes into play that that was this other principle that i think we we referenced that we've talked about uh before right at the beginning number three saving faith and the holy spirit are necessary to fully embrace and properly apply the scriptures it's one thing to understand what it means it's another thing to believe that it's true and to act on it and apply it and live it out. I mean, a person who is an atheist can read, Thou shalt not commit adultery, and they don't have a problem understanding the meaning of that, right? I mean, if you can understand the words, you understand what God meant there. But they might not find that to be true, and therefore they're going to live a profligate life and, and, and whatever. So you see my point? But the Holy Spirit, for a believer helps us. Uh, I was just answering another question earlier today in my studies with someone, and I called up my no trust obey chart. And we've talked about this in here before, but obedience or moral behavior is built upon trust. If you trust someone, you're going to do what they say. If you don't trust them, you're not going to do what they say. And that's what it boils down to. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So basically, every time you choose you make a choice, you're deciding which you're going to trust. Should I commit adultery or should I not? God says don't, but I don't trust him. I think I'm going to go the way of the flesh, right? But how do you build trust? Through knowledge. The more you know someone, the more you trust them. The more you trust them, the more you obey them. So the same thing is true in the Christian life. The more we know God, the more we'll trust God. The more we trust God, the more we'll obey God. How do we get to know God? By reading and studying his word. So that's where the Holy Spirit comes in is that, uh, remember uh, Psalm 119, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So he brings the passages to your mind. He connects one passage with another. He helps you, you know, like we're studying the kingdom right now on Sunday mornings. Well, it is so exciting when you really begin to understand what's to come, and then you're reading passages that you may have never seen in that light before, and you're understanding them in a context of, you know, the, the eternal kingdom of God. So, the last thing I would ever want to do in a study like this is to make people afraid to study the Bible or discouraged. But no, the Bible is is our 
lifeblood. It's everything we need, right, for life and godliness. So don't, don't you know, take, your takeaway from this is not to think, oh, I, what if I've got it wrong? What if, no, the Bible's pretty simple. I think most of the time we get it right. But just remember when you come across passages and you're not sure at face value what they mean, there are some basic principles that we're going to get into tonight uh, that help you look for certain things, look for figures of speech, look for what's the command, for example, you know. So, uh, so I hope that helps, you know, your question. I mean, I, I understand what you're saying, and it was so well said, is that, you know, I feel like, what did you say, the wind was out of my sails. But I, I get that because you're thinking, well, I've never really thought about it before, but what I'm trying to do is make it simpler, not more complicated, you know, frankly, most people don't even think about how to study the Bible. I think I used this at the beginning of our series, but no one ever would ever pick up a, a novel by, say, Tom Clancy and turn to page 250 and start reading in the middle of the page and wonder why they can't understand it. <laughs> Nobody would do that because they have a, no, a natural understanding of how do you read a novel. Well, you start at the beginning and you read. But that's what we do with the Bible. And then we wonder, well, why can't I understand that? Well, because you're... You're not reading it in its progress of Revelation. You're not understanding it from Genesis to Revelation. You're not even understanding it in its immediate context. So hopefully it's, uh, it's energizing us to get in the Word of God more and to recognize that, you know, if I can read, I can understand it. Yeah? So you talked about the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal meaning. And number three kind of reinforces that. Holy Spirit helps us embrace and properly apply. So it's more application than meaning. The Bible is God's way of saying, here I am. Look at me, gain knowledge, understand what it means to be holy and walk in his footsteps. So I'm coming away with it's more important the application than the meaning. They're both important how you apply it in your life and your walk with God has the greatest value. Yeah, so he said, I'm coming, I'm going to truncate what you said, but he says it, it almost sounds like the application is more important than the meaning. Um, and, you know, let's go back to the five steps. Remember, the, the capstone step in the five steps of Bible study is a changed life. So in that sense, you're exactly right. You know, it's like ding, ding, ding. That's exactly what I've been saying. But we don't want to imply by that that meaning is irrelevant because people have come up with some wild and crazy applications from a verse that it's hard to connect the dots from that. You know, and, you know, like I talked about last week, you know, if, if you don't understand basic rules of grammar and interpretation, such as figures of speech, you know, you might misapply the passage where Jesus says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. Well, now you're, it could physically kill you. <laughs> so application, that's an extreme example, but application that's not tied to the original meaning can be dangerous. Um, but honestly, you know, when it gets to that, like back to Judy's comment about if someone sends a verse and maybe they send one that's not really on point, but they think it is or are intending to make another point, well, at that level, really it's no different than the Holy Spirit just using you, a person to say a kind and encouraging word, whether it's connected to the Bible or not. And the Bible talks about that, right? A word fitly spoken is like, uh, what is it? Uh, apples. apples of gold and settings of silver, right? So, I mean, I'm just saying that the Holy Spirit can bring encouragement and edification to our lives through a number of ways doesn't always have to be tied to the Bible. So someone can just say an encouraging word, you know. Um, now, people, you know, tend to, especially Christians, use Scripture because they know that Scripture, uh, you know, is, is infallible and inspired. Uh, but what's interesting is you might have a dual benefit. Someone might send you an encouraging word and put a verse on there. The encouraging word uplifted you. The verse may or may not actually be able to be connected to the encouraging word that the person thought it was, but because it's the word of God, you read it and maybe come away with another encouragement. So, but let's not forget that the goal is accurate interpretation. And even though people misinterpret scripture, we talked about this, that sometimes there's no harm, no foul. Like 
the Jeremiah 29, 11 passage. Is it true that God has a plan for each individual's life? Absolutely. We see that in a lot of places in Scripture. Uh, David said, before, I, before he formed me in the womb, God knew me. And, and other passages. So Paul talks about that in Galatians. So that's true. That's just not what Jeremiah 29, 11 is saying. So there's a situation where someone might say something that's true and encouraging, tag it with a verse or proof text it. That verse really isn't what that means. Uh, but then if you dig a little deeper, then you're going to find out a richness to our Creator where it reminds you in that whole section of Jeremiah that God is a covenant-keeping God. He, he was reminding Israel that He's going to keep His word with Abraham. This was... See, Abraham was 2000 B.C., Jeremiah was roughly 500 B.C., so 1,500 years later, God is telling the nation of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that I'm, I'm going to keep my covenant with you. I have a plan. I'm going to prosper you. And so, wow, when we read that, we think, wow, God's amazing. So the more accurate we are in our handling of the Scripture, um, the more value it is in our lives. So it shouldn't be something that, oh, we wring our hands and we're sweating because, oh, did I get every jot and tittle right? It's, it's just recognizing there is one meaning. And, you know, most of the time it's self-evident. If it's not, dig a little deeper and let the Spirit of God use the right meaning to encourage and apply it in your life. So, did I have, Was there another hand back here that I filibustered right through? Zondervan. Well, you know, most of the big publishers now are controlled, bought and paid for by the ultimately the elite that we've been talking about. It doesn't mean everybody that works for them is a bad person, but uh, you know, I think. Does that mean they're all Calvinists? Or, or worse, I take a Calvinist over a Luciferian every day, and and I don't really like Calvinists, so that tells you what I mean. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, no, I, I think uh, that's why we talked about one time not long ago about how independent publishers are really, uh, you know, the way to go. But um, so, so I expected this discussion, and I'm really excited about it, um, but, uh, you know, about singularity of meaning. But the idea is if we take the written text and we say that the ideas in the mind of the reader uh, are what give us meaning, then we're going to have an endless number of meanings. That's the bottom line. You can't. There's no other way around it. So, uh, back to Ken's uh, quest or comment. I want to be careful how I say this, but God in His divine design and His His self revelation to mankind, of all the ministries that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has, God's divine design wasn't that. We need the Holy Spirit to understand what He told us. Okay, we can understand this without the Holy Spirit. As I said, a person can understand what "Thou shalt not commit adultery" means, whether they're a believer or not. But the Holy Spirit has a number of other ministries in the whole, you know, the whole doctrine of pneumatology, the study of the Holy Spirit, that are vital to the Christian life, and that's what the doctrine of illumination is all about. But we don't want to saddle the Holy Spirit with, well, the Holy Spirit just hadn't told me what that means yet. Because then we don't need to, we don't even need a course like this. We just need to do like they do in the Eastern religions, just sit cross-legged and say, hmm, and just wait for the Holy Spirit to plant that meaning in our mind. And that's just not the role of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, you know, God, God gave us His revelation with the understanding that we could understand it. <laughs> with the intent that we could understand it. Not with, okay, now here's this. Now, get connected to the Holy Spirit, and He'll tell you what it means. No, it's not a two-step process. This is it. He's given it to us right here. And the gospel, by the way, is the power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. That's where it all begins for an unbeliever. And what did Paul say in Romans 10.17? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. If you can hear and understand this, you can be saved, right? Uh, yeah. So I might have the interpretation of this verse wrong, Well, let's look at the passage because I want to make sure we've got it right. It's Romans 8, right? Is that what you're thinking of? 
Um, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, let me find it here. Where? 26. Here it is. Yeah. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercessions for, for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So that's the verse that came to my mind. Yes, that's the one I meant. All right, so it's not saying anything about the Holy Spirit interpreting something we're saying. It's saying that when we don't know how to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for us, and what he's uh, praying, he's praying with groanings which cannot be uttered. In other words, it's, it's not our groanings that are being uttered. It's the Holy Spirit's groanings that cannot be uttered. Let's read it again. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Okay. Then I have the interpretation, the meaning of that verse I had lost. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, I think a lot of people think the same thing, that somehow, you know, that when we have these ecstatic utterances and these groanings and we just we don't even know what to say, that, that somehow the Spirit is interpreting those utterances on our behalf before God. But that's not what it says. It's when we don't know how to pray. The way I would apply that verse is I would say, if I was in a situation where I just didn't even know what to pray, and we've all been there, you know, crisis at times, I would say, Spirit, Lord, I don't even know what to pray. So, Spirit of God, pray for me. You know, communicate what I can't even make sense of in my own heart to the Lord on my behalf. And 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 that's what He's going to do. So, good question. These are such great questions. So, all right. So let's uh, let's uh, buzz through these next few, and then I want to get to figures of speech tonight. All right. So. Uh, interpret these next three, 11, 12, and 13, which is where we left off, are all about context. We don't need to rehash them, but basically context is king. We've got to interpret every passage in uh, its context with the concentric circles of context. The smaller the passage being studied, the greater the chance of error, which is why if you just take a verse and put it on a bumper sticker or put it in an email, you could be, you know, going astray. Uh, you want to make sure you, that you understand what it means at face value. Now, these next three are all about uh, figures of speech. So, number 14 is, when an inanimate object is used to describe a living being, then it's a figurative statement, right? So, Jesus is the door, right? Clearly, that's a figure of speech, right? Um, you know, those, those types of things. Um, then... Uh, What's that? Your word is a lamp. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now that's a, uh, depending on how you define word, you know, that's an inanimate object describing an inanimate object. That's true. Right. But uh, we, we're going to come, we're going to look at a lot of these. Yeah. Unless the word is Jesus. Unless the word is, you know, John 1, 1. That's why I said, depending on how you define word. And the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, the living incarnate word. Uh, number 15. When an expression is considered out of character with the thing being described, then the statement is figurative. Okay. Um, and we're going to show some examples of this in a minute. But um, So here's an example. I'll give you an example. So um, God, the attributes of God, if you, if you do a study of theology proper, uh, he's immutable. So he, he can neither, which means he's unchangeable. So he cannot grow in knowledge. He's neither deficient and capable of improvement, nor can he deteriorate, right? So he knows all things at all times, always. So when the Bible says the Lord grieved, or, you know, the Lord uh, changed, his changed his mind, that's a big one, say, in, in uh, Jonah comes to mind with Nineveh. Or in the Garden of Eden, when God says, to, where are you? Right? That's, those have to be figures of speech because that's out of character with what the Bible says about God. And this is where you get into some really interpretive problems. And a whole a movement has arisen over the last 30 years uh, that my mentor uh, in uh, theology and ministry once called, I heard him say this in person, this movement, the greatest threat to Christian orthodoxy in church history, 
but it's called the openness of God view or the open theology view, which basically is the view that God can only know what's knowable, and if things haven't happened yet, he can't know it. And so they, take, they point to passages like that and say, see, God didn't know where Adam was, right? But they're mishandling the scripture, and that's an example of an anthropomorphism ascribing a human characteristic to God so to help us understand it. So that's what we mean there. If the, if the expression is out of character with the thing described, it's a figure of speech. And then the third one that deals with figures of speech in the general sense here, uh, interpret the words of the prophets in their usual, literal, historical sense, unless the context or manner in which they are fulfilled clearly indicates they have a symbolic meaning. Sometimes people equate prophetic literature with symbolism. And they've, they've, been, they've bought the lie that, oh, there's a lot of symbolism in Revelation, so you just can't understand it. It's just too symbolic. No. It, you, know, you can understand symbols. We do it all the time. We, in fact, we live in a culture where they are now using symbols for everything. People don't even use words anymore, right? You know, if, if someone sends you, a, a, you know, a, an emoticon with tears coming out of there and the big smile on their face, what does that mean? It's a symbol, but you don't go, oh, wow, that's weird. No, you go, oh, they're laughing, right? Uh, so we symbols do not in any way mean you can't understand what something means. It's just a method of communication. And we're going to talk about how to interpret prophetic literature. Uh, but I want to go through some figures of speech. So if you want to pass those out for me, I, we're going to do a little exercise after I go through these, if, assuming we have time, and I think we will. Uh, and I wanted you to have these in front of you. Uh, so that you can kind of pick and choose which, which uh, figure of speech a particular verse is. Uh, but I'm going to put them on the screen too. So here are some figures of speech that are used in Scripture. This is not exhaustive because there's some obscure ones, but these are the main ones that you see again and again. I just mentioned the first one. Anthropomorphism is attributing human features, characteristics, or actions to God. So Isaiah 59.1, The Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. Neither is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. I mean, now, did we have any, would we have any trouble understanding what that verse means? This is one of those examples where you don't really even need the context. It's said in a given context, but the general principle is, yeah, you know, God is capable of saving in any situation, and God can hear the prayers of his people, right? So there's, you know, two figures of speech in this one sentence and yet we understood what it means, right? We didn't stumble at that, I hope, right? Pretty self-evident. But what we probably didn't really think about is the fact that a figure of speech is being employed. We use figures of speech in everyday language so often and pervasively that we, we don't even think about it, right? Um, so that's anthropomorphism. A euphemism is the use of a less offensive expression to indicate a more offensive expression. So, for example, Paul said to the Corinthians, uh, because of their problems at the, now this one you do need a little bit of context, but because of their problems at the Lord's Supper and the conflict and, and, and things that were going on in the church, he says, that's why many among you are weak and sick and a number have fallen asleep. Who said that? Died, died right. Fallen asleep is a euphemism for died. And we have some in English too. Passed away. Right, um, I think I mentioned this once before, but uh, when I was just a young preacher, before Bethany was even born, we had just taken my first full-time church in Illinois, and it was a small farming town, and I got a call in the middle of the night from the hospital, and the nurse on the other end of the phone said, uh, you know, so-and-so listed you as their church, and we just wanted you to know they expired tonight. I had never heard that term. And I'm thinking, what are they, like a can of mayonnaise or something? I mean, what, what do they mean they expired? Well, that's just a medical term. means they died, right? Yeah. They bought the farm. They kicked the bucket. You know, they, they're six feet under, you know, whatever. Uh, they croaked, right? So there's a lot. But some of them are not so much euphemisms as they are, I don't know what the term is, but the euphemism is when you take a more, you know, more offensive expression and, and uh, use a, 
less one to explain it. So a hyperbole is the use of an exaggeration to say more than what is literally meant. So Paul or uh, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets. Okay? I mean, that's clearly a figure of speech, right? He's not forbidding the use of trumpets when you take up the offering, right? So when, if someone were to put their offering in our offering box and play a little ditty with their trumpet, they would not be violating this scripture. I mean, maybe they would. It depends if they're trying to call attention to themselves. But basically, he's using a figure of speech called hyperbole to keep, to, to, to say, don't, you know, show off and don't, you know, announce or brag about your giving. Uh, merism, this is the word I couldn't remember Sunday. I forget, you had asked about uh, a verse or something. Oh, uh, going from one end of heaven to the other to bring Israel back into the land. And it just escaped me. My mind was stuck on metonym, and I, but it's merism, uh, which is uh, the substitution of two contrasting or opposite parts for the whole. We, we have a lot of these in Scripture, but uh, we have a lot in English too. But, for example, David said, Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. It's, it's a merism, meaning you know everything about me. Um, what if we said in English, I lost my keys and I've searched high and low. What do we mean? I've searched everywhere. That's a merism, high and low. Opposite parts to mean the whole thing. I mentioned um, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible begins with a figure of speech called merism. God created the entire universe, everything. You know, he's using up and down, high and low to communicate that. Um, you know, in, in, you see the phrase flesh and bone. Well, that means the whole body, right? The whole body. Or, um, you know... If I, you know, everyone young and old will appreciate this movie. Well, that means everyone, right? For people young and old, well, that means everyone. A merism, young and old. Um, you see a series of merisms in traditional marriage vows. For better or for worse. For richer or for poorer. In sickness and in health, right? Um, what if you're not rich or poor? Well, that's not the point. The point is, it's a merism. In all circumstances, you're supposed to be, you know, uh, faithful or whatever. Uh, metaphor is pretty simple. It's just a comparison between two things. You are the light of the world. A is B. That's how you inter That's how you find a, a metaphor. Uh, a simile, which I think we're going to get to in a second. Yeah, that's different because it uses the word like or as. But a metaphor is A is B. You are the light of the world, what Jesus said in Matthew 5. A metonym or metonymy, I've talked about this, is the substitution of a word or phrase for another word or phrase associated with it. So, for example, Jesus said to the Pharisees, these people honor me with their lips. What did he mean? See, again, most of these, we know what they mean. We just didn't know it was a figure of speech. But is he, is it, is they, are they literally honoring him with this? words. <laughs> Right, with what they say. So lips is a metonym for speech, right? Um, so, you know, you might say uh, in English, the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, there's two metonyms. What does that mean? The written word, you know, which you use a pen to do it, so it's a pen is something associated with writing a metonym, is mightier than the sword. And sword, of course, is military, physical power, or war, right? Um, another military one, boots on the ground. Boots is a metonym for people, soldiers, people that are on task right there on, on hand, right? Uh, every Sunday, Gary uh, takes a head count in our Sunday service, where head is a metonym for the person, right? I've often suggested that he count ears and divide by two, but he said that would take too long, so he counts heads, right? Uh, uh, plus, if that guy that uh, it was in the Garden of uh, Gethsemane showed up that doesn't have an ear that Peter lopped off his ear, then that would throw our whole count off, right? So there you go. There's always a risk of that. Now, if someone, now if the headless horseman showed up from New England, uh, all right. Anyway, um, a metonym. Um, you know, if someone lends a hand, well, a hand is a metonym for their help, right? Um, we, we might say, the White House declined to comment. 
Well, the White House is a metonym for the president, right? Something associated with it. Yeah. yeah. He, he declined to comment because he could not comment. He could not speak uh, two words. But anyway, uh, we, we see this... Uh, we see this in other uh, settings, too, like in England, you know, Downing Street would be a reference to the Prime Minister. Uh, we have no news from Capitol Hill today. Well, is Capitol Hill going to suddenly grow a mouth and start speaking? No, it means from Congress or Senate or whatever. So you, you see what metonym is. Uh, personification. Uh, I was hoping to get to our uh, test, but actually what we'll do is, uh, since we're not going to have time to do the case or the uh, exercise, you'll take these home. Memorize, and then we'll do the exercise without them next week. So, uh, uh, Personification is describing human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects. Uh, so, Isaiah said, the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. So, again, this is different from anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism deals with God, giving human characteristics to God. God's hands, you know, God's ears, and so forth. God's long arm of mercy. Personification is ascribing human characteristics to other inanimate uh, objects like or animals, like the moon in this case. Uh, I mentioned a simile, and that's another comparison like a metaphor, but it's using like or as. So David or Psalm 1 says, He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of living water, right? So obviously, you know, if you're in the Word of God, you're going to be strong and, you know, have deep roots. A synecdoche is one you may not have heard of, uh, but it's the substitution of the part for the whole or the whole for the part. Um, so Psalm 80, hear us, O shepherd of Israel, who lead Joseph like a flock. Now, this is synonymous parallelism, so Israel is synonymous with Joseph, but Joseph is a, you know, he wasn't talking specifically only about Joseph here, he's using a synecdoche to talk about Israel. So you see this a lot with Jacob as a reference sometime to the whole nation of Israel. Uh, so ABCs in English is a synecdoche for the alphabet, right? You know, when we say ABCs, that's a part for the whole. Um, uh, if I said, uh, man, I got a new set of wheels. I mean, I got a car, not just wheels. I mean, what do you think of my new wheels, right? Um, so, um, you know... Uh, if you if you think about uh, in the Bible, beautiful, uh, I forget the Old Testament reference, but Paul says this in uh, Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news, right? So it's a part for the whole, a synecdoche. Remember, a metonym just has to have some connection to it. It might not be part of it, it's just related to it, right? But uh, a uh, synecdoche is part for the whole. And then zoomorphism uh, is attributing animal features to God. So contrary to, in contrast to anthropomorphism, this is like, you know, the Lord will roar from on high. Or Jesus said, I wanted to gather you under my wings, right? That's a zoomorphism, right? And then litotes, uh, we, we use this all the time in English, and the Bible uses it too. I come across them regularly. But it's when you emphasize a positive by denying its negative. So, for example, in Acts 27, Paul said, when no small tempest had beat upon us. No small tempest is a litotes. What did he really mean? It's a big storm, right? So when I say, you know, if, if one of my kids does, you know, some artwork, and I say, wow, that's not bad. What do I mean? It's really good. So it's a litotes. Anytime it has a negative, but it really is, so you're emphasizing the positive by denying the negative. Uh, that was no small feat. The commentator might say, after some Olympian did some great thing. Well, they meant it was a great accomplishment. Um, you know, they don't seem to be the happiest couple. What does that mean? Well, they're pretty unhappy people. <laughs> What's that? You say what it means. Yeah. Well, but it, it, it's, it goes beyond that. It's, it's a litotes where it's actually emphasizing the opposite, right? Uh, so in this case, they're particularly unhappy. Um, uh, you know, if we said New York City is, is no ordinary city, what we mean is, is it's a spectacular city. It's a above average, right? It's, it's you know. Um, 
you know, I'm trying to think of a few more here that I wrote down. Um, you know, they're not, let's see, they're not the cleverest person I've met, right? Well, that means they're particularly dumb. <laughs> That's what we're trying to say without saying it. Um, you know, a million dollars is no small amount. I mean, that's a lot, right? So watch for these litotes, and you'll see some in the figures of speech uh, exercise that we're, we'll pick up with uh, next week. Yeah. Now, in the definition, you said it had to be a positive for a negative, but does that, I mean, can you also switch it like you were doing? Or does it yeah, it's, uh, did I say that? Um, yeah, because most of the ones in Scripture are that. But I think technically speaking, a litotes is uh, denying one thing means you're emphasizing the opposite. So, yeah, some of those were that, weren't they? Um, like they're not the happiest couple is uh, you're trying to say they're, you know, in a negative sense that they're not happy. But Does yeah. Does it make it a euphemism as well if, it, if you're doing that? Like if you say he's not the sharpest. Yeah, you. That's a great question. You you see examples where multiple figures of speech are kind of merged. So if you're basically trying to say you're an idiot, you could use a litotes to say, you know, you're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I mean, you're still not really. It's still a compliment. I mean, it's still an insult, right? All right. Right. Were you thinking of me when you? Because you were kind of looking at me when you were inspired. Uh, so yeah. How would you categorize, well, bless your little heart? Bless your little heart. Well, first of all, heart is a metonym for the person, right? You're saying, well, bless you, what we're really saying. We don't, we're not talking about the physical organ, right? <laughs> Unless you're a cardiologist that is about to do triple bypass and he prays, Lord, bless his heart. Then, again, context determines meaning, so it could have a physical meaning of your heart. But uh, I would say that's probably um, condescension. I don't know. <laughs> well, your time in Houston was wasted. My, my, t my time in Houston was wasted. Yeah. Wasted, yeah. yeah. It's a southern expression. It, no, I know. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of a, a funny skit that we that the kids and I have watched on on that whole thing about bless. You know, there's, everything is bless this and bless that if they're sitting down in a cafe. You know. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess that would be more of just an idiom, you know. There are idioms that are that are a little bit different category than a figure of speech, that they're unique to culture, like it wouldn't translate into some other country, right? An idiom. So, uh, like, you, you're driving me up a wall. Well, you could translate that into Spanish, but I don't know if it would have any meaning there, right? So those are idioms which are unique to culture. Figures of speech transcend language. They're used, as we're going to see, in, in Greek and Hebrew all the time. And all of the ones that I've mentioned here are universal in all languages. So, Yeah? The gospel, asking Jesus into your heart. Yeah. So that comes under the category of heresy. Uh, no. uh, that, that would be sort of a colloquial term, and as I've talked about in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, it's only 100 years old, so I guess before 100 years ago, people couldn't get saved, if that's what it takes, because it's never found in church history anywhere. It's just a, it's a, I think it's a mistaken way to communicate what it means to believe in Jesus for eternal life, um, and it's not really a figure of speech, it's just an inaccurate um, colloquial way to say something, you know, so... Good question. So you guys are thinking along the right line. So um, we're already out of time, but I can't resist. Let's just do a couple of these, and then we'll come back next week. So if I said my enemy, the first two are not from Scripture. The rest of them are. My enemies are like dogs. Simile. Simile, and the dead giveaway is like or as. What if I said my enemies are dogs? That's a metaphor. Unless I'm a postman who's literally being attacked by dogs, then it would not be a figure of speech. So this is why it's important to look at context, because a lot of these could be literal, but they are also figures of speech. Um, uh, psalm 121, a great psalm. My, David said, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. 
Yeah, exactly. A merism. Did God just make the heavens and earth? No, he made everything. It's a, it's a two opposites to mean everything in between. Uh, Paul said, but going back to, well, this is 2 Corinthians, actually. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to serve you. Hyperbole. Who said that? Very good. Did he literally rob them? No, he was saying he, he took resources from them, gifts from them, uh, to serve you. And he's, he's being exaggerating. I robbed them. Not like he had a mask and a gun. He's just saying it was an exaggeration, right? One more to finish this slide. Lord, let thine ears be attentive to my supplications. Anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism, exactly. Ascribing human characteristics to God. All right, well, we'll do some more of these next week, but thank you guys. Hopefully this was helpful. I felt like it was a really good discussion. You guys were uh, really on your game, and uh, we should probably just edit out all of my talking and just put in your comments for this uh, video. All right, see you next time. <laughs>